we go. Okay. All right. No guarantee that the sound is going to be this great um, because I believe I'm using my computer microphone, but I'm going to turn it up at least. And at least I can hear Cindy and that's what's most important. So welcome to She Became Visible and Cynthia, she was um, my very first guest. I believe this is episode eight or nine. I'm not sure. Um, but she just had such a wealth of information. I just like, I, I, I need more. I've got to get more. So I invited her back and she made arrangements to make it happen. And, and she, you are, you're out in Pennsylvania, right? Yes, that's right. Central Pennsylvania. Okay. What is your weather today? Uh, it's been all over the place. We had sleet and snow over the weekend and today it's 70 degrees. So 77 tomorrow. That's insane. I know. Crazy. I know my kids up in Washington state had snow. uh, Yeah. 31 degrees. And it was 96 down here. It's like the world is coming to an end, but yeah. So we're going to get started. Cynthia, um, I wanted to start out by just reading something that I had found online. And um, Mm -hmm. did I throw my first page away? Let me see what I did with the first page. But basically it was, um, statistics of caregivers and it was saying that um it was talking about caregiver burnout Mm -hmm. and it's it's one of those things that I think um you know as you age there we go so uh, you know as you age some sometimes your caregiving involves taking care of your parents and taking care of your children and Mm -hmm. and you still have a job and you still have uh, maybe a, a partner of some kind. And that's where the stress comes in for caregiving. Usually though, in cases like that, it, it's a, there's a timeline, mm-hmm. one or two years, maybe five years, something like that. And, I, and I've often heard people, you know, re, reflect back on the time that they had to have mom move in or dad move into the house and they had to be a caregiver and I don't know how these women do it if they've got a full-time job and now they've got a dad that needs care and it's just crazy. But the statistics were showing that 80% of long-term care in the United States is provided by unpaid or informal caregivers. And of these, 61% are women, most have reached middle age and 59% also have jobs. I thought those were amazing statistics. So it was talking about uh, though caregiving stress can affect anyone providing care, research shows that 75% of caregivers um, are, you know, are, um, are like I said, they're, they're, they're trying to do everything. They're trying to do the kids and the job and, and the whole thing. And so, of course, the recommendation for anybody that's under any kind of stress, they recommend that we take time out that we um, get a break, that we go for a walk. Mm-hmm. And, and, I, and I think that there are certain kinds of stress. Like for example, if you have some kind of a very high stressful job and you're sitting at your computer and you're on a deadline and you've got to get this out and you're just, you're just going crazy, taking a break, going for a walk um, and uh, maybe just mm-hmm. you know, letting your, you know, that works. Yeah. But for long-term caregiving, and I'm not talking two to five years, I'm talking 25, 30, 40 years. Right. And oftentimes the bath, 
the book, the private time, the go for a walk, get some exercise, watch your diet. It doesn't work. And I think it's because there's a certain stage where you realize that the stress that you're under doesn't have a timeline. Right. And so you mentioned, you started to say something, which was like, I'm to see, this is why I have you back. You started to talk about chronic sorrow and chronic grief. Yes. So talk about that because I don't think that it's the chronic part that Mm -hmm. people don't understand. So talk about that. Well, I I did some research a while back um, on parents who have kids with disabilities and on caregiving in general. And it talks about how when your life changes in ways you're not expecting, it's a loss. And it's not something that you can just grieve and get over because it's being brought up again, over and over again. Like every time there's a new milestone, um, you know, first it was like my kids weren't walking and our neighbor's kids were running around the yard and then, you know, going to school and you go in and volunteer in the school and your kid's not reading, but the other kids are reading and running to the library. And um, so every time there's little reminders of how life is different than what you expected. And um, I'm not saying it's bad different. I'm just saying that sometimes we have to give up the dream that we had and um, we have a different dream, but it, it keeps coming up in different ways. So um, the, uh, the stage I'm at now, my sister's got grandchildren and, and really enjoying being a grandma. And I love seeing all those little great nieces and nephews growing up and enjoying the baby giggles and the birthdays and um, fun trips with grandma to the zoo. And, um, but at the same time, I'm sad that I'm not going to have that and uh, that my life path is different. Um, I get to enjoy other things, but, you know, there's some level of chronic grief that goes on. It doesn't mean I'm depressed. I'm allowed to have these feelings and um, I have to keep reprocessing them. I think um, under other circumstances in life, when things come up that are stressors or whatever, you, you deal with it and you move on and it's not still there it's resolved and in this case the the, it might be sort of resolved in in me emotionally at that time but it the situation is not going to be resolved until I'm not walking on this earth anymore so um, there's a lot of studies about that someone once described I think is like in in the ocean like when you're little and you first get in and the waves just knock you down, um, that's like the initial onslaught, onslaught of the grief. Um, but as you get older, you know, there's still the ripples and sometimes still bigger waves come and they might still knock you down, but you're still being affected by those waves when they come, they're impacting you in some way. So um, it just might get easier to handle them over time. Right. Um, yeah, but it's still there. The, the, the background of grief is still there. Right. And I, I love the way that you described that, you know, with something that's chronic and, and I, it would be interesting to talk to someone. Like I remember as a gosh, 
I was probably only 21 mm-hmm. and we were attending a church service and the, uh, the gentleman that was speaking talked about how he, they had a child that had passed away and mm-hmm. how that you don't ever get over the grief and you have yeah. other children. And right. sometimes people think, well, oh, but you had other children. Yeah. And he, he was explaining how you still don't get over that grief. No, and you don't. I remember at the time, not being able to understand that. Um, and, and so, but I, I will say in the case of being a caregiver, it's not only the sadness that you feel, it's also the work. Yeah. And that doesn't stop. That adds a, a level to it because you never catch a break or have time to process or anything. Right. And and I think it's also interesting. You'll be able to relate to this, but um, um, my son is going in for a surgery tomorrow. Mm. And so the hospital calls and of course, they've got to do the rundown. They have to ask you all the questions. And one of the questions was, um, does he have uh, seizures? Mm. And I said, yes. And she was like, oh, when did that happen? And I said, well, actually, he just started having seizures in September. He's 36 years old. He's mm. never had seizures before. And in September, I was putting him in bed and I laid him on the bed and he started having a seizure. My husband was out of town because that's always when things happen. They yeah. never happen when there's anybody around. So my husband was out of town and I remember watching him and I was sitting, standing over him and I'm watching him and I'm thinking, I don't know what to do. He's, he, he's not, you know, he's vomiting or anything like that. So there wasn't an airway problem. He was breathing. I was just new. It was something mm-hmm. new. And then, um, so I told my husband about it when he came back and then he didn't have, it, it didn't, nothing happened again. And then a few weeks later it happened again. And, um, so then I started calling. I, so I, well, I better call. So I called the doctor and of course, you know how you have to have a referral. And so you get the referral and then you call the doctor and, and I'm trying, this was, this was last year. So there was still the, you know, the whole, we're going to do video doctor's appointments. We're not going to do. Real okay. Anyway, Barrow's neurology, there's a huge neurology hospital here in Phoenix. And mm-hmm. um, so I thought, oh, the, wow, what a, what a blessing that I live in this place with all, the, all these neurologists. And I called and they said, well, they only see patients on Thursday. And this particular neurologist can only see you. So there would be probably the end of the month. And I was like, wow, okay. And then it got moved, you know, to another page. And I was like, you know what? I'm not doing this. It's not that big a deal. And bottom line, what are they going to do? They're going to run some tests. They're going to put them on some kind of phenobarbital or some kind of medication. I don't want to put them on medication. It's not that severe. It's not, you know. So I'm not going to do anything. All I all I would be doing is going to the doctor, having them say, "Hmm, interesting. Well, we, let's just keep an eye on him." <laughs> you know that yeah. kind of thing. So I'm like, "Yeah." So anyway, so the hospital calls yesterday to do the thing, and when she kept saying, "Does your primary care doctor know about?" Anyway, so it's yeah. just other people's reactions to things that we have learned to really mm-hmm. kind of grade. I'm going to give this a yeah. one to ten. We right. it's a three and it's not going to rattle us because we've had other things that have rattled us more and that's right. surprising to other people. Um, but it's ongoing. Like you said, it never, yeah. it's every day is a like, Oh, what are we dealing with now? This is a, a new, new normal. 
Yeah. I told somebody the other day, I really hate that phrase. The new <laughs> I'm normal. tired of new normals. Yes. Gosh. Yeah. So tired. Every time there's a new diagnosis. Right. So. so now your kids are not, you have one son that is living independently. Semi. He's here, but he's, yeah, he's taking care of his own, own needs. Okay. Um, the oldest one, he, he works full time doing online tech support from home for Intuit. So, yeah. So he does like QuickBooks and other products. He just got that job June a year ago and he's done really well with it. And we've been so proud of him. Um, So they set him up with the computer, all the online training, everything was from home. He only had to do one orientation day at their office and um, otherwise everything from home. And um, he's, it's been his first really full-time job with benefits and everything. He's doing great, trying to save money to get, you know, get out and get his own place. Um, but uh, he still has, he has Asperger's and bipolar disorder, um, but very stable, very smart kid. Um, and we're, I'm very proud of him. He's, he also has celiac disease. So he's having to manage diet and other things. And he's really um, been learning to take care of himself. So, so yeah. Is that frightening for you? I mean, are you still kind of monitoring his diet? No, he, he, um, he lived in uh, what we call a rehabilitative residence for like two years here after high school, um, where they work with people who have different mental illness to be independent and take care of themselves. They have a coach that lives in a house nearby. Um, so he did two years, hard years of working on taking care of himself, budgeting his money, doing his own grocery shopping, doing his own cooking, learning to live with two roommates and keep the house up and all of that. So when he graduated from that program, he moved home because finances and, and places to live, but we've maintained that routine here. So he takes care of his own cooking, um, his own doctor appointments. He arranges with me if he needs a ride somewhere, cause he doesn't have a driver's license yet. Um, but he schedules all of that and um, is living as independently as possible. Just happens to be under the same roof with his family. So fabulous. Yes. Okay. So you're not having to cook meals or monitor his gluten or anything like that. No, he's doing that himself. Plus it, if he has a gluten exposure, it gives him some pretty immediate feedback and how he feels that day. So um, yeah, he he'll get pretty sick. So he, he's good about reading labels now. And um, it helps that both of my sisters have celiac. So um, especially my middle sister, she's been able to kind of, mentor him and share recipes. And when they came at, um, when did they come in the fall for a Penn state home game? Um, she took him into my mom's kitchen and was showing him how to make her cinnamon roll recipe and all these other things that she does with her gluten-free recipes. So that was great to have that for him. That's way off topic, but that's another diagnosis. Like three years ago, we found out he had celiac and it just keeps, you know, there's always, it's, it's a moving target. Right. <laughs> There's always right. something new. Our kids right. are complex and we're figuring it out. Right. Um, so now when you talked about that program that yeah. your son was able to do, mm-hmm. how did you find out about that? We, um, he had to have certain diagnoses to qualify. He'd been involved with the, the mental health supports here in our County. Um, He had been um, at risk of being hospitalized in the year or two previous to that placement there. And um, we were um, 
you know, with him graduating high school, that was, we were looking at what were the next steps for him. And um, the, the county worked with this agency and we were able to meet with them and come up with a plan for him to be, um, you know, placed there and living there. It was, it was like a mile from our house. It's actually really close by. Wow. Um, this one agency owns a row of townhomes. There's like six of them, I think. The house in the middle is where the staff is available 24 seven. And then they've got three people in each of the townhomes um, who are consumers with mental illness. And they're working with the staff who's like their coach on managing their own conditions and um, getting the right supports in place and getting employment or counseling or whatever they need. So wow. it was great. So if there was somebody um, living, you know, not in Pennsylvania and, and uh, it, did it help that your son had had a diagnosis throughout his educational system? Like I think so. Okay. Um, it, it helped in that people knew that he had a mental illness it wasn't just Asperger's and he wasn't just being a brat or something that right. he had bipolar disorder. So when he ended up in crisis, it wasn't, uh, you know, we always hear these horrible stories of like the police coming and right. there right. being an incident. We didn't have that experience. The, he was already registered with our local crisis line. So all we would have to do is call the crisis line and they would send out a trained mental health worker to wow. come and assess him. And that was kind of, it was after a little crisis like that, where we, we were able to get him to stabilize and not have to be admitted to the hospital, that um, we were able to work with the county to get him this rehabilitative placement for his long-term um, goals okay. of being able to live independently. Okay. Um, so, but he had to be already on the radar with a diagnosis and a case manager right. and all of that. So that's, it's so it's so um, you have to make a decision at certain points in their life. And I right. remember when uh, we have a grandson that's living with us now, and we went through a lot of different testing, you know, for him. He mm-hmm. never got a test for being on the autism spectrum, but he, I know he is. And, and, and so there were times when I would think, oh, if, if I, if, if he just could have gotten that diagnosis, he would have gotten different help. Instead, he got attention deficit disorder and it got it got him an IEP and it got him a lot of help as far as being able to his grades and credit for mm-hmm. the work he did. And it's going to get him a, a high school graduation. But I don't think it really got him the help that he needed. Um, but I can see now looking at him and I'm thinking, you're you're not you're not working as a 19 year old man. You're, right not functioning in that area yeah and it's emotionally right much younger that's my son also right and so you know so the caregiver even caring for himself he's almost like you're working with like maybe an eight or a nine-year-old and but he doesn't have that diagnosis to get him the help that he needs for that but yet people expect him to act like a 19-year-old right and and that's always been a problem for him because he's a big guy so he looks you know so so it's, it's, it, and then, but then you start hearing things like, oh, if you have a diagnosis of, of autism, you know, you might not be able to, you know, you won't be, be able to be in the military or it's going right. to stop you, for, you know, so you're always going back and forth. Do I want that label in his medical records? Yeah, I get you know? that. But so that's a hard one, but I love that. That's a great idea though, about 
what can you do before it gets to the crisis stage to get some mental health? Yeah, that's one of the things we were glad about with when we moved to this state in 2005 was the children's mental health support system. Um, it's not ideal by any means, but the one that we had in the state we came from was broken and terrible. And um, they, when we ended up in crisis with him in that state, we had to be at the point of having to put him in the state hospital before they would even consider providing in-home supports to try to keep him in the community. But by depending upon what time of the year that crisis occurred, the right. county might've already spent all their money. So they'll say, yeah, we agree. You need 25 hours a week of intensive supports at home, but our money is gone for this year. So um, we're just going to make a note here. And we realize you, yeah, we, we know you're screwed. So, but <gasps> nothing we can do. Um, wow. No, they didn't say it that way, but, no, but yeah, that's, that's the reality budget. That's, that was the reality of, yeah, our money is spent. We realize you need support, but we can't help you. So you started trying to, the system there was then on July 1, if you had a crisis, that was the day to have a crisis because then the money was free for the new fiscal year and you could get supports or if you knew you were going to need support, apply for it as early in the fiscal year as possible um, in order to get it funded. So moving here was good because in Pennsylvania, if your child has a diagnosed disability, it doesn't even really matter what it what it is. They, there's a loophole they call it um, that allows you to try to automatically get Medicaid. So, oh, oh. so no matter what your primary insurance is and what they do or do not cover, Medicaid covers a lot of those therapies that um, you can't get covered elsewhere. And of course, the provider's pool is limited, but um, a lot of like the behavioral health people. Um, uh, Pennsylvania also had the law about, they were one of the first states to mandate the applied behavioral analysis, the ABA therapy. Oh, and um, yeah. that to, because prior to that, insurance companies wouldn't pay for it. So, um, but in Pennsylvania, if you had a child with a diagnosis, Medicaid would cover all that stuff. So, wow. um, so the crisis line, the case management, all of that was there for him once we moved here. So tell me again, because I'm trying to remember um, from last time, yeah. you, yeah. You researched out the best place to move my family to to get the services I need, and so you were you were living in the Midwest. No, right? we were in Virginia. Oh, you were in Virginia, okay? In Northern Virginia, the Washington D.C. area, which blows my mind. I know. Washington D.C. should just be like overflowing with yeah. And well, the city of D.C. itself is not good at all, and then Virginia at the time was. Um, 49th out of the 50 states in spending per capita on children with disabilities. Um, yeah. And like I told you, like the mental health supports, we had to be ready to place him at the, the state hospital in Staunton three hours away before they would even remotely consider. So he had to be very unstable um, before they would even consider it. And then if there was no money, we were out of luck anyways. So um, the, the funny thing is though, the state that we moved to, and the school district here that is so wonderful um, is my hometown. So, oh my gosh. Yes. Okay. So, I, I knew like you packed up the station wagon and drove yeah. into who knows where. No, I knew it was a good place to raise your family. Okay. Um, it just, the question was, were these other supports going to be there? Um, it's in the middle of nowhere, but um, 
So I, I have to drive for medical specialty stuff. If you okay. go to Pittsburgh or Harrisburg or she, Philly, um, in this little rural area, the, the specialties aren't there as much, especially okay. pediatric specialties. Okay. But they're all adults now. So we're finding, you know, the adult specialists there are. So that's a lot easier yeah. for us. That was, that was, I remember that being, you know, once they turned 18, we had to get legal guardianship for him. And, and even dealing with my grandson, he's 19, he's an adult, he's just finishing up his senior year, but he doesn't need any kind of adult signatures on anything. Right, because he yet, can make decisions. Yeah, because legally he can make decisions for himself, and yet he can't. And yeah. so that's the hard part when I doctors, you know, and I'll go, let me give you his phone number because you're not going to talk to me. But can I right. just tell you a few things before you talk to him, you know? Yeah. <laughs> but Oh, my gosh. OK, so your other so the, your other son and daughter, they're also living at home. Right. They are out of, also out of the school system, correct? Yes, they are now. Yeah. OK, so what kind of a program do you have? What's set up for them? Uh, well, we've been kind of um, COVID's been hard, so. Oh, uh, you want me to talk like before? And, yeah. Yeah. The reality. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, um, before times, uh, Christopher had a, a, a community-based day program that he went to on the days that he wasn't working. He has, he had a job at the bowling alley that he loved. He had a job coach that was supporting him there. I would hear all the stories every night of everything that happened at the bowling alley when he came home. Um, the day program was one of the few in our area that's like 100% community-based. It was great. They would they would pick them up every day, like eight o'clock. They went to their where their center was, but they didn't stay there. They had like a cafeteria menu of here's your options for today. We can go to the library. We can go volunteer for Meals on Wheels. We can go um, fishing at Fisherman's Paradise. We can do um, go volunteer at the thrift store, the faith-based thrift store, or do they had all this menu of things they could do for the day. And once a week on Tuesdays, they would go bowling. And um, so they had a three to one ratio with staff. Um, and once they got reorganized, they would shuffle out into the cars and go off with the staff member for whatever they were doing all day in the community. Um, and they, you know, they go volunteer at different events and um, it, it, and sometimes they'd have field trips. They'd go to like a zoo or something. Um, and he, he did really well there. And we loved that for him. And he was, people in the community knew him and recognized him because he was out um, serving and doing things and participating in our community. Um, COVID kind of put shut that down. Um, they eventually started back sort of on a altered basis where then you had to wear a mask all day. Um, they had to have three consumers with one staff assigned that they stayed together like the bubble so he did he lost that choice over what his activities were because he had oh. the same activities everybody else in his bubble were doing with that staff member driving them around you know, having to wear the mask for eight hours um except for when eating uh, and it was like what if i don't like the two other people assigned to my bubble you know he started having some uh anxiety and some refusal about going. And I think also the whole COVID thing was making him anxious about going out in the community. So he stopped. <laughs> and in the same time frame, we also lost the um, habilitation aid that we had to work with him from home. 
um, and do community-based or work with him at home on organizing his room and doing his chores and all of that. Um, so we've had no services at all now for almost a year um, and no supports. Um, his sister was in a similar program, but she's got more chronic health issues going on. And she's had to step back from just about everything. Her, her um, quality of life is very altered. Um, we've got a new diagnosis in the last three years with uh, chronic vomiting syndrome. It's no. like a variation of migraines. So she just gets sick and she doesn't know when she's going to get sick. And sometimes it's multiple times in a day and with abdominal pain, um, just not a good um, thing for her to be able, she never knows like if she can go out and commit to anything because she might start feeling bad 20 minutes before it and not be able to go. So um, we're very um, loose with her, flexible as far as our expectations for what she's able to do or participate in family and otherwise. So um, she's home right now um, and has been pretty much home for two, two years straight. So um, we had some support services for her, but her having um, left even before Christopher's did. So we've really um, been on our own with both of them and they both need some supports. And, uh, you know, as you said, who does that fall on? Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. 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 Now, so falls on mom, falls on you. Yes. So do you have a schedule that's 24 seven? There's no days off. You've got kids that are there that have to, that wake up that, that you have to care for. Right. I mean, there is no, yeah. well, especially like Rachel with the vomiting hits in the middle of the night. No. Yes. Which it does sometimes. So then she's up and um, she's able to take care of like washing her own sheets and stuff. But once she's up, she doesn't have the impulse control to like not be talking and be quiet and just try to manage it. She's right. running around talking to herself and like, okay, I got to go wash my sheets and waking up half the household. And um, with Tim working full time from home too, her crazy hours are kind of <sighs> affecting him as well. So right. um, yeah, it's, it's uh, chronic sleep deprivation. Yeah, right. you you right. you should know that. That's um, yeah. well, that that's hard. the one thing that we were blessed with for three or four years. He was up every few hours, but after he was about four, he started sleeping through the night, and that's the only thing that saved me. Honestly, is I know that when I put him in, you know, I always say I because he's in a wheelchair and he's completely non-ambulatory. I don't have to worry about him running away. So yeah, put him in bed. That's where he's staying unless I get him up. Right. And um, so, cause I, I don't, I don't do well with, you know, after a few days of no sleeping. So, oh my gosh, I just don't think people understand. They just don't. And right. I think it's very fascinating too. The, um, how, how COVID affected, not just, not just the kids in the school or the guy at work or the right now I, I've heard they, they that um, China uh, Shanghai is locked down again. You're, yeah. Yeah. And I heard that and I was like, well, but you're a guy and you have a full-time job and you're there in Shanghai and, and it really sucks. And I, then he's, it was the scary. I mean, there were some scary things he was talking about running out of food and stuff like that. It's, it's very scary, but there's so many other things that people don't know about. Mm -hmm. that if they knew about it, they would be like, 
oh, wow, I never thought about that. Like they say, cancer doesn't know right. that there's COVID, right? Your, your, right? your illness doesn't know that there's a COVID problem and your doctor can't see you. So That's, all of that stuff. In some respects though, um, yeah, I mean, COVID's been hard for our most vulnerable people. And, um, but it's also in some ways brought other folks into our world where you know, we've had to be hunkered down for years for different reasons. Um, Rachel's immune system can be a little wonky. We got to be careful of who or what we expose her to. Right. Um, so, you know, you're not being able to like do something like attend church regularly because things are happening right. and um, to have suddenly have all that available on YouTube or Zoom or um, yes. I mean, for the first time in years, I'm able to participate in a regular women's group through our church on Thursday nights because they went to Zoom and they've oh determined God. that there's enough people out there that they need to keep that. And I'm like, oh. thank you. And the uh, YouTube, the church is doing services on YouTube and um, it's a small church, but since they've seen the numbers of people who are watching online for people who can't always make it in, that's us. Right. Um I now have regular attendance via online, whereas my attendance have been so spotty because I just never knew what our, our day was going to bring right. and, or if I'd be able to get out of the house and take one of them with me and go to church or not. So, um, that's interesting. That's, know, it's our, a mixed church, thing. Yeah. It, it, you know what? And there were other things like, um, I remember when they started putting the plexiglass up at different places. And I remember thinking, I think that's a good idea. I think we should yeah. keep plexiglass up there. And yeah, and uh, uh, so there were a lot of things where it's like, why didn't we have open buffets? I don't think that's a good idea to have open buffets. <laughs> so I'm okay yeah. with all some of these things. So some yeah. of the things I, I remember, and this is crazy. I don't know what what you guys did in your church, but you know, in our church, they would have the bread and the water, uh, and they would they would just pass it around. They pass the little oh. around, you know. And right. I remember even before COVID, I remember just one day it hits me that I'm watching these little kids they're picking up this piece oh and I don't want that piece how about that piece? Oh, I'll take that piece or they just grab a yeah. handful of bread and I yeah. remember one day watching this going ah, ah, yeah. I didn't even think about this you know and so so then during COVID they they before they completely locked down they started breaking up the bread and putting it in individual individual cups I was like good idea I believe we should keep that up and of course yeah. they didn't, the minute COVID stopped they, they oh no but they also had the Zoom thing and, and it was so great for so many older people. Um, right. In my particular, in our situation where we're at, they decided to stop doing Zoom because people weren't coming to church. So they're like, yeah, I'll just stay home. So, uh, okay, that's not going to work. But it worked out really good for me. Um, you know, yeah. I, mean, I, I used to, my, although I look at his closet and I go, oh gosh, we ha I haven't had to had a chance to dress you all up in that cute suit and that nice tie yeah. in years, you know, cause I, I kind of enjoyed doing that. And yeah. so, you know, but it's, it's, there were, there were, there's always, I guess, some certain things that you learn yeah. from, but so. But we didn't now, even have a sinus infection for two years because we were that plexiglass and um, social distancing and it was like the healthiest two years we've had as a family. I know you never heard any, any other illnesses being talked about for that. I mean, that's true. So you start yeah. going, we need to rethink this a little bit. Okay. So what's your, and now you, how long ago was it that you were diagnosed with the, so you have some heart issues going I on. I have heart issues. Um, yeah, that's start, gosh, it's almost four years now, I think. Um, oh. 
I know it was three years in January with the diagnosis, I think. I, I'm losing track, but I know. Um, Isn't that amazing? I had a, a really bad flu case of the flu in um, 2018 or 2019. And um, just never felt like I got back. To, you know, I've had a long history with asthma. So I, I thought it had just set off my asthma right. and months and months of feeling dizzy and lightheaded and wheezy all the time and very short of breath, sort of like the long haulers with COVID. I just did not get back to my baseline and it just kept getting worse and worse. I was feeling like death warmed over, even though I was long past the flu that I'd had. Right. And, um, the, um, I was supposed to have uh, surgery to repair a hernia and um, they did the pre-op and they found I had all these extra beats getting thrown off by my heart. And uh, she thought it was just her leads that she'd placed them wrong. And it was picking right. up a wrong thing. So then they had to repeat the test yeah. and uh, still had, she said, you're in a bi-gemini and tri-gemini pattern. And I was like, I didn't know what that meant. I was Amazing. like, I feel fine. But I said, yeah, I've, I've felt these fluttery things. I thought it was like upset stomach or something or was wheezing in my chest. I didn't know it was actually my heart fluttering. Um, so um, if I hadn't been having the elective surgery, we wouldn't have picked that up and I wouldn't have gotten a referral to the cardiologist and the pulmonologist because I kept seeing how I felt like I was going to pass out just walking from my back door to the car. Right. And uh they stuck me in a monitor, found out my oxygen when I was weight bearing was dropping into like the low eighties. And, um, I was like, well, that explains why I'm like, the room starts going black. Right. And, um, then they found this, uh, heart pattern and, um, put me on oxygen and told me to stop having caffeine and stop my ADHD meds. And, um, the, um, so all the things that kept me going, <laughs> But I'm sleep deprived. I couldn't take any more and can't stay as organized as I used to. But um, the the cardiologist was great. He found a, a medication that's normally used for blood pressure. I don't have a blood pressure problem, but it regulates, it helps chemically alter the way my heart is beating so that it's beating, draws out the beats and doesn't do the extra little flutter beats in the middle. Um so that, that has been a big help. I'm still needing oxygen um, when weight bearing, especially when I'm seated, it's not so bad. But um, when I get up and walk around, I, I need like two to three liters of oxygen going. So um, do you think yeah. that the, the flu that you had, that there was some kind of a virus? That's our, our theory. We just don't have, a, there is no like visible damage to the heart muscle, but the theory is that the cardiologist said he had kind of seen that before that the virus did some kind of damage in there to whether it was the, the nerves around your heart or the muscle or whatever, um, that it had done some, something changed there. And so it wasn't beating the way it should. I'm not processing oxygen anymore the way I should. And, um, it's helped some losing weight. I had major surgery last summer. I had a gastric sleeve surgery. Um, in fact, the last day of Chris's habit was the day of my surgery in June last year. So um, I came home the next day and we had no supports and I was home, home recovering from surgery. Oh so yeah, I know, I know. Um, like, get we had out plenty. of bed and go take care of that. It's like, well, let's just talk about the fact that I'm cut I just off. had 
Yeah, I just had major abdominal surgery. Yeah, but that's been a big help too. That's been part of my journey. Is now I've lost like eighty pounds over the last two years. Wow! Um, because of it's helping, I've been able to reduce how much oxygen I need, but it's not a hundred percent yet. So right, right, hopefully, right. I'll keep keep yeah. working on it. That you know, and when you, I was so impressed when you when you told me the story when a bit before about how you're. Your brand new little baby girl is like four months old. Your husband yeah. passes away. And yes. I don't think if I remember right, I don't think you had gotten the diagnosis. Or, no, you knew right away when she was born. because Yeah, because of her brother. Yeah, yeah, they both have microcephaly. Right. Yeah. So you were like, uh-oh, here we go again. But yeah. so you had a little bit of preview of coming attractions, but now you've got to deal with the grief of losing right. your partner. And um but then when you told me that you were able, that you went back to school, yeah, and, you know, I was so impressed with that because I, I, I mean, that's what it's all about. The fact that you were like, all right, I've got a family I have to support. I have kids I have to take care of. I have to be, I have to have some kind of credibility, you know, in order to provide for my family. So have you retired from that working with a special ed? Are you completely retired from that? I've had to go out on disability now. Um, uh, it's been three years now, so I'm, I'm out. Um, and I'm not, um, I'm not pulling down my state retirement yet because that would be way too early. Um, I'm going to try to wait till I'm 65 to pull that down. I could have taken it on disability, but it would have reduced the payments. Right. So I'm trying to leave that there. Um, and just we're getting by on our social security right now. So it's not ideal financially. It's been very hard. Right. Um, and we're probably gonna have to make some changes here soon, um, to alter how and where we live, right. um, to make sure that, um, we're provided for not being homeless. Right. <laughs> so, so what, when you were in the process of moving from Virginia, mm-hmm. even now with your kids and their, and their, men, their, their mm-hmm. medical situation, mm-hmm. What would you say, what's your first reaction? Like you say, your daughter gets a new diagnosis. This is something new. She hasn't had that before. What's the first thing that you do to go, all right, we got to figure this out. What's, where, what's, are you like, we're going to Google this and figure out, or what's your first step? Uh, it probably started even before we got the diagnosis, just trying to figure out what is this condition? What are these symptoms that we're presented with. I mean, it took a long time to get to the chronic vomiting syndrome diagnosis with her. We went through two, three years of not knowing and her throwing up and it looking like gallbladder and having scans for that. And then thinking it was um, the problems with this when your, your gut is slow and it's not moving the food through the way it should be. Um, we looked at motility issues there to see maybe she was not having good motility and was backing up and that was making her throw up. Um, you know, every time she'd have these bouts of the abdominal pain, we were running into maybe it's her appendix. We're going to the ER and, um, she was having to get IVs for hydration. So it took a while to get a balance where. When you do that, when you say, you know, she's throwing up, she's having, she's in pain. We have to go to the ER. Right. What does that look like for you? I mean, she's ambulatory. She can get in the car, but you have two other children at home. Well, right. So 
do you throw them in the car as well? Or what are, are they able to stay home by themselves or what, well, how do you handle that? Well, the oldest one can be in charge for a while. He's, he's able to do that. Okay. So um, then her brother, his ISP, which is the individual support plan, um, what the way we've said, it's, it says that he can be home for like an hour on his own. If we have a plan for what he's doing, he knows, you know, like, okay, this next hour, I'm going to be working on my laundry or I'm going to be doing YouTube on my phone. Or um, if there's a plan for what he's doing, then it's good um, okay. for that little bit of time. Um, right. Longer than that, though, he's going to need supervision. Okay. Um, and his brother's here if he needs okay. help. If there is no brother at home as a backup and or I mean in the past I I would try to work it out to go like call my parents who are now not as able to do things right um and have him go visit grandmommy and granddaddy while I take Rachel to the ER or um just yeah with COVID I that's not an option I'm go with me it before COVID if I had to he could have gone with me but now they're limiting who can go back and yes, yeah and you can't stay in the waiting room no no so, well you can to some extent in yeah because he's close by if they needed me they could get me true. um and there's tv to watch but right. not in a waiting room now with people coughing and covid yes. and no yes. no that's not happening um, so um it's where it's important for us to get those uh habilitation support services back in place so we have that person that's his support person that's here with him and keeping him engaged and doing appropriate things. So I can go and do right. the other things I need to do, like right. take somebody else to the doctor or the yeah. ER or whatever. Yeah. If emergency comes up in the middle of the night, that's actually good. Cause they're all sleeping and I don't have to worry about them. I can just take right. her and go. Well, and I also like what you, I mean, you were very honest with saying how, it wasn't like you took her to the doctor and they went, oh, gee, I, I wonder if it's chronic vomiting syndrome. No. Through, maybe it's her gallbladder. Maybe it's just, which we all do, you know. Right. Um, so that's why they call it practicing physician, you know. So yeah. it's a matter of, you know, running all the tests and this kind of yeah. thing and then waiting and waiting and waiting. And they don't know. You you have right. to, you're on the team. It's well, and every time you schedule one of those tests, it's like two, three months out. Before yes. they could even get you in. And meanwhile, she's in pain and she's having yeah. all these problems. And she lost like 40 pounds in a matter of like six months. And um, thank goodness we've got the weight pretty stable now. I I should have invested in Gatorade when all of this started, but um, yeah. the, the hydration drinks are really helping a lot and altering her diet to keep it very bland um, to things that she can keep down better. Um, just, Yeah for a long time she was only like eating rice and bananas and Gatorade and that wasn't exactly the healthiest thing but um as we're figuring out like what medications help her with the nausea and other things it's evolving and this particular diagnosis is a diagnosis of exclusion it's sort of like we have to rule out all these other things and then what's left is okay we think it's chronic vomiting syndrome you have to go see this specialty I'd never heard of before, a neurogastroenterologist yeah. right. at the big city hospital in Pittsburgh, who's the only mm-hmm. one in Pennsylvania, I guess, who does this and, right. and um, talk to that doctor and uh, start getting treatment for this diagnosis that is what we give you when we haven't been able to figure anything else out. So. Right. 
the the have you found that his i mean i'm assuming with uh medicaid uh medicare that you're that you have some kind of a caseworker um that do you have a caseworker that like checks in on you i i i have yeah. that tj's on medicare now and so i have a caseworker that calls every 3 months to make sure that everything's okay which is great she's amazing yeah. do you have something like that i don't have it through medicare um but because they're both on a uh, waiver funding. I don't know if you know what waiver is. No. Um, waiver is the what pays for all the in-home supports. Um, it's a Medicaid program um, that is not income dependent that helps pay for individuals with intellectual developmental disabilities or physical disabilities be able to live in their own community and not be institutionalized. So they have a, a case manager through the county who's called their supports coordinator and uh, she checks in, she has to visit it's been virtual for two years, but uh, monthly uh, we meet with her and then annually we develop their plan for what their support needs are and um, keep her up to date on the medical stuff that's going on and everything. So should anything ever happen to me, there's a whole plan out there with a wealth of all their information, the medications are on, who their doctors are, uh, what their diagnoses are, what support needs they have, what are our, the goals that we have set, what are the things that they like to do? What are the things you should avoid doing with them? Cause that's not so good. It's all in this one big plan called an ISP, individual support plan. So um, that person's now, there. I do you believe there's medical case management available through the insurance. Um, and I took advantage of it one time with uh, Chris when we were going through some seizure stuff with him. Um, but it, it honestly, they, didn't have a lot of help for me other than what I'd already found out on my own and the yeah. specialists. And yeah, so just more of a checking up, make sure that you're yeah. still, you're still disabled. <laughs> the other one, yeah. A miracle cure. Yes. Night. Yeah. That's all. They're just checking. Yeah, like social sure security that. every five years wanting to make sure you're still disabled to send you that money. Yeah. Like, well, I don't know what part of these diagnoses is temporary, yeah. but <laughs> I wish they would somehow flag those things because you know, cerebral palsy is brain damaged, not going to get better. Yeah. You know, right. you, you check in every 90 days. He still has cerebral palsy. You know, it's a waste of taxpayer money to keep having these checks that are supposed to ferret out fraud. But I'm, I'm they're spending way more money trying to ferret out fraud, find the fraud than actually, you know, yeah. I think any good that they're doing. So, yeah. so do you, do you think, um, what would be your what would be your thing if you if someone was listening to this, they've just gotten mm -hmm. a diagnosis, um, okay. they don't they don't know what to do. What would you say the first step is? Assuming you have a trusted primary care physician, I would start there. Yeah. Whether it's the pediatrician or whatever, we have a wonderful primary care group that we see. They're all all the ones that we see are DOs, not MDs. Oh. And um, it's a very holistic in approach. Um, I credit one of them with catching Christopher's esophagus issues um, that I thought it was just autism and a food sensitivity. Right. And he's like, no, I hear funny, weird things with the esophagus going on here. We think you need to go see the gastroenterologist. And that led to finding out he was having this whole food allergy that we didn't know where his esophagus was swelling up and not having like hives. And that literally when he was gagging on the food, he was literally choking on it because his esophagus was swelling up in reaction to that food. And 
sorry, I'm way off topic again. Um, yeah. But having a doctor you trust who, um, you know, they don't, yeah, I know primary care is not a specialist in yeah. certain areas, but if you have somebody that you trust who listens to you, yeah. who takes time, who respects that you're the parent and you know your child better than probably anybody else, right. um, that's a, a great first place to start. And then kind of like, I think of them as like being somebody on my team. And then we're like, okay, we're going to develop a plan for how we're going to figure this out. They're, they're part of our team. And um, yes, I might be doing research on Google or, or talking to friends from other support groups who have kids who have similar um, disabilities. And um, uh, unfortunately, we've, we've been plugged in for 26 years now with a group of parents who have kids with microcephaly. And I used to moderate the the listserv for that one um and it's just nice to be able to to write to my hundreds of friends all over the world and say has anybody ever dealt with this and what what was it what was the diagnosis and who did you go see for that and um so but it starts with the primary care and then i start gathering information and um trying to reassure my child we're going to figure this out and um go from there you know what? You're, you're, you're so right. Because I remember, you know, when we finally got the diagnosis from the specialist, then that was it. Then he put me in charge, you know, now you go over here. And of course we we're fortunate enough to be near Oregon health science university. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, the doctor was at good Samaritan, but the physical therapist was OHSU and, and then they, they recommend this. And then once he got in the school system, physical therapist, the speech therapist, they worked mm-hmm. with him. And so they would be the ones that would say, I think he's getting a little big for this wheelchair. I think we need to get him a, Time to get a new one. Yeah. You know, so really they, they helped create the team. And then, um, you know, like you said, the, I, you know, we had feeding issues and eventually I got talked into going to a gastroenterologist and then you find the neurologist. And so they really do the, the primary care sends you out and starts all the feelers and starts bringing in the other people. And, mm-hmm. but I love that idea of finding a support group. Um, Mm -hmm. because like you said, one of my other guests has a daughter with a very rare, uh, thing too. And you find other people and they have suggestions and you're like, Oh, I never thought about that. And there's always Mm going to be, there's always a spectrum a little bit for everybody has things that maybe they don't have to think about, but it's, it's still, but, and I love how you were talking about, um, it's it's not just in your town, it's around the world. Yes. That's amazing. Yes. It's always, it was so heartening to you know, we would have people that would come and join our support group who were in countries where the neurologist would say this was the only child they knew who had this condition. And they would come into our group and plug in all of a sudden have 1400 parents from all over the world that had a child with that condition that they could talk to and, and find out, you know, what were some of the therapies that have worked. And, um, you know, it was just a great support to have that and to bounce ideas off and, um, same time, be able to give back so that what we had learned the hard way was something we could pass forward to somebody else so they didn't have to figure it out. The information's there. So. Right, right. Well, that's excellent. Well, once again, I can't believe, I mean, you're just this encyclopedia of knowledge. And I just, I love the fact that you're vulnerable enough to share with everybody and, and oh. let everyone know, you know, what it's like in the real world. This is the real world. It and, is. um, and I, I'm, I love that, that hopefully that what you've told people and, you know, if you don't like your primary care physician, I was going to say that 
Yeah. Get another one. Find another one. Find we had to do that. Yeah. You know, when, when Christopher was uh, 12 months old and the family doctor was leaving the room to go look something up. And then I happened to go to the restroom and I saw her sitting in her office, flipping pages through her neurology textbook, trying to figure out what to do. I was like, okay, we're going to go find a pediatrician who has experience working with kids with microcephaly. And um, we did, and we found a wonderful pediatrician, not even that far away. And all of a sudden we were getting referrals to early intervention and things that we weren't getting with the other doctor who was trying to say, oh, this could be normal. We'll wait and see. And, and everything I know about early intervention now is the sooner you start it, the better. Um, get those therapies going so yeah make if you're if somebody if you have a doctor that doesn't listen to you or doesn't respect you um doesn't um it just kind of brushes you off or acts patronizing um it's time to find somebody else find someone that that will really work with you be part of your team that's that's so true what i think if i remember correctly what you said was um uh, we keep trying to get Virginia on these things and she's, you know, she lives in a different yes. time zone and yes, you know, it hasn't worked out yet, but one of these days we're going to get her. But I remember you saying that you found friends through the yeah. Facebook group that you had. Yeah. And, yeah. Jenny's one of them. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I love that, that you, you can have that connection. It's something that other people, you know, didn't have. Mm-hmm. And I don't think people understand the isolation, what isolation does. Right. Um, I just had my my doc, my nature path. I don't take TJ there, but my, for me, um, he said he had a he had a, a client that um, had a wheelchair accessible vehicle, um, but then it started breaking down and started having problems with it. And it couldn't get it fixed. And before he knew it, he didn't have transportation. Mm. And so he was so isolated. He's finally checked himself into like a nursing home because you know, all he needs is a car. All he needs is a car That's terrible. to get him out there. And I, you know, it's the isolation that these chronic illnesses, like you said, you have a, a daughter that has an immune system and it's the isolation that is so depressing mm-hmm. and discouraging. And, right. and, uh, and then, like you said, and then I, I remember even when, when TJ aged out of the school system and like you were talking about your son that enjoyed that day program that he went to. And now all of a sudden he's at home. Where's mm-hmm. his friends? Where's his activities? It's, and now he's isolated. He's at home. Right. And, um, it's hard to get him back out there too, at this point. Yes. Yes. Yeah. He's kind of become a hermit. <laughs> right. Well, all right. What do you have planned? What does Cindy have planned for Cindy? Anything? Oh, you said that once everybody goes to bed, you have a little bit of time. Oh, yeah. yeah, my guilty pleasure is playing video games oh, <laughs> with, I have some online friends and I am, I enjoy all the Harry Potter, oh. um, stories. So there's some games that I play and, um, some nerdy friends who have podcasts that I help moderate their, their, their Twitch streams and stuff. So oh, that's yeah, no, it's, it's good. And, um, this, one of the things, uh, about becoming widowed was that I had to kind of rediscover who I was before I was married. And there were things I had set aside hobbies that I hadn't done in a long time. And every now and then I I find comfort in starting some of those things again. So like playing the piano or just listening to music or this past year, I took up knitting after 40 years, I hadn't knit and I made the kids for Christmas, all their own wool hats and, um, 
now I'm working on a rather complicated knitting pattern for my daughter with kind of a fair isle uh, two color yarn thingy in it and trying to build my skills. I have a goal by the end of this year to make myself my own Icelandic wool sweater. So um, I had one years ago, but so I've set a goal for that. And yeah, I'm just working slowly toward I made the hats first. That was something simple. Yeah. Now the learning to do the stranded knit, knitting work with the mittens is leading to eventually doing the stranded knitting work with my sweater. So um, mm-hmm. I, yeah. I love that I, because you and one of my other guests said the same thing. It's trying to remember who we were mm-hmm. before we don't became, lose that. Yes. And then you go, wait, I loved that. Yeah. I'm going to do that again. I, and I, that's such an, uh, an important thing. I don't know. I could be very, this could be my feminism coming out on me, but I don't know if men ever forget who they were mm. because they didn't have to give up who they were to become right. a father or, you know, a not, husband. Not, not a lot of men, but there are men who I think, yeah, in fairness, do give up a lot of things. Um, but yeah, no, a lot of the guys, like you said, it a lot 60 some percent of that caregiving falls on on the woman in the home and um so the guy is still out there doing his wednesday night bowling and yeah well listening to these guys talk sometimes i'll listen you know over here a group of men talking over some event or something and it's like i don't think you guys ever did get out of high school (laughs) because <laughs> that was a long time ago that you were the quarterback, yeah. you know, or whatever they talk about. Yeah. You know, I don't often hear a lot of women going, yeah, you know, when I was, when I was that, you know, you know, in high school, yeah. they've uh, maybe moved on a few years. In but defense, that- though, I mean, I just spent a weekend in Pittsburgh at the USA Disabled Hockey Festival with a whole lot of dads who are there with their kids with disabilities oh. in their ice hockey programs, being oh. supportive, helping coach helping some kid with autism get his hockey gear on to get out on the ice you know there there are wonderful guys out there who are committed to their kids absolutely Um, absolutely and and maybe they get to share their love of ice hockey with their kid but uh um it was there there are good guys out there I don't want to bash them all but I I also know a lot of marriages that broke up because the dad couldn't handle that and basically left the marriage emotionally and um it when some guys when it's not something they can fix they are you know i they they have no coping mechanism for it right right yeah exactly i i have i have seen both and it isn't it definitely isn't gender based i have i have some women that i know mm-hmm. that also walked out of situations the same so yeah it, it's definitely it's definitely um just what you're made out of so well thank yeah. you so much yeah. once again i've been fed I appreciate uh, your time and your knowledge and your sharing. And, same to you. you know, it's just amazing. So uh, unfortunately, I think we'll probably end up talking again one of these days. You, oh, you talk about with Virginia. I want to hear more about the Okay. Put your pictures up on the podcast. Oh, yeah. yeah man, it's so beautiful. Yeah, we have to get Jenny on. It's, it's interesting now where she and I are and some of our other friends as our kids are now young adults and how things have changed. Yeah. And um, she's got Michael home now, you know, but they've carved out a really nice life for themselves. And um, yeah, it's, I'm it's dying good. to hear her story. And, I, and, uh, and I'd love to get, you know, both of you guys on and just hear yeah. about the friendship yeah. and support each other and yeah. everything else. So thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank All you. Right. We'll talk again.
All right. Hopefully there there will be some kind of sound when this is right. <laughs> yes. I hope. Any, I don't care. Even if there wasn't, we had a great conversation. So there you yes. go. <laughs> Thank you so much for your patience right. through the audio issues. Bye. Bye.